watching Mildred Pierce a lot recently. I watch it often. It's a favorite movie of mine because it's Joan Crawford. And what I what what really struck me as fascinating with the recent watching was that this film written in 1945 by two men and a woman, and the woman who's uncredited for writing it, her name is Catherine Turney. Uh, I think the other two other, uh, William Faulkner, and then um, Ronald McDougall were the two other men who wrote it. But Catherine Turney is uncredited, and as we discover through history, we find out that women uh, contribute a lot to things that they don't get credit for. Hello, misogyny. But these three people wrote the screenplay, and uh, from 1945, and it passes the Bechdel test in a fascinating way. So, because it's 1945, and this is, you know, so we've been free from enslavement uh, since Juneteenth as black people, but the Civil Rights Pact is, is, is nowhere near the Civil Rights Pact. Huh, interesting. The Civil Rights Act, uh, we're, we're not in, anywhere near that yet. It's 1964, 65, right? So, we're literally decades away from that, but we're out of enslavement, so we're domestics, most black women anyway. So once Mildred Pierce, the character, makes more money and she's successful, one of the signs of her success is she has enough money to have a black domestic in her house because that was a sign of wealth for white women, right? So, of course, the actress who was played domestic number one at that time was Butterfly McQueen, right? She was in Gone with the Wind in 1939, and she's in Still Playing Domestic in 1945. Um, one of the famous things that her her predecessor, Hedim Daniel, said was that I'd rather play a maid than be a maid, right? So she's she's an actress getting paid money to play a maid, but representation matters. So the fact that in 1945 someone as brilliant an actress as Butterfly McQueen is relegated to maids um, is disgusting, right? And we really haven't come that far. I mean, one of Viola Davis's most powerful roles uh, in recent times is playing a maid in The Help, right? So we're still playing domestics in the in in twenty in twenty in the in the in the, the millennium of the two thousands. We're still playing domestics. It's ridiculous. Anyway, it's early. I'm having my coffee, but it's early, so bear with me. That was a bit of a digression that was tangentially related to my main point is that I found it interesting that the movie passes the Bechtel test only in the scenes between the white protagonist and her black domestic who is inconsequential, right, to her life. But those are the only scenes between Mildred and Ida where Mildred is not talking about a man. Those are the only scenes. Now, Mildred's obsession is with her daughter, Vida, but even in her scenes with um, her business partner, who's a woman, um, who's played by the amazing, incredible juggernaut that is Eve Arden, who I adore and worship. Whenever she's with Eve Arden, it gets she's either talking about men, or she's talking about men and Vita. So there's not a moment where she's not talking about either Monty Berrigan, her, her lover, or a man and Vita. 
So the scenes that actually passed the Bechdel test were two named female characters exchange multiple lines of dialogue and are not talking about men or with the person who the character deems inconsequential, which is her black domestic, Ida, i.e. Thelma Butterfly McQueen. Isn't that fascinating? And I also thought it was interesting that A, you know, this was written in 1945, and of course they weren't thinking of diversity and, 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 and you know, um, <laughs> the Bechdel test didn't exist then. But I think what they were thinking of was that, okay, you're not going to talk to your domestic about your lover, your male lover, and you're not going to talk to her about your daughter, Vita. So you're going to talk to her about something inconsequential, the weather, fashion, the day, right? Interesting. Very interesting. Um, and I think it's fascinating to note that because we use the Bechdel test as this metric of diversity when it's a metric of white feminism, right? Because even right there, that proves that this scene, the scenes with her black domestic passed the Bechdel test, but it's racially problematic. It's a black person in a subservient domestic menial role, a step above enslavement. It's, it's uh, servitude. It's indentured servitude almost. I'm sure she's paid a penance for working as her maid, but isn't that interesting? I thought that was fascinating to know. Child, this Gail King, Kobe Bryant mess. Oh, you knew I had to speak on it, children. So here are my thoughts, and I want to be succinct about it. So I'm actually going to read you um, my Twitter threads. My thread on it is actually, I think I summed it up pretty well. Here we go. I find it interesting. Oh, you can follow me on Twitter, by the way. At the letter B as in boy, flood 28. There we are. Follow me. I find it interesting how white hegemony uses black people, at Gail King, to revilify and revictimize dead black people. For CBS this morning to set up a black man, pardon me, I read that incorrectly. For CBS this morning to set up a black woman, at Lisa Leslie, to be ambushed by another black woman in defaming her dead friend is white supremacy in praxis. Since I screwed that up, I'll read that again. (laughs) Here's the tweet. I find it interesting how white hegemony uses black people, at Gail King, to revilify and revictimize dead black people. For at CBS this morning to set up a black woman, at Lisa Leslie, to be ambushed by another black woman in defaming her dead friend is white supremacy in praxis. The tweet thread goes on. We are always pitted against each other by white hegemonic capitalist systems, so this interview is typical, but still disappointing, to see at Gail King let herself be used in this way. At Lisa Leslie was there to talk about what Kobe Bryant meant to her as a colleague and friend. For at Gail King to be complicit in using this international platform to relitigate a case that has been dismissed and to interrogate a black woman in defending her black deceased friend is troublesome and speaks to a pattern of her and her more wealthy friend caping for whiteness. 
at Lisa Leslie handled this attack with aplomb, grace, and simply stated facts. Case was dismissed, charges dropped. To which Gail King turned personal by seemingly attacking the veracity of Leslie's judge of Bryant's character by saying she, quote, wouldn't see another side of Bryant, end quote. Gail King shifted from an, quote, objective journalist, end quote, to having an agenda of pushing a narrative. At that point, she became a prosecutor badgering the witness. Question was asked and answered by Lisa Leslie, yet Gail King persisted like Leslie was an uncooperative witness in a trial. Far from hashtag cancel Gail King, I ask her to stop and ask herself why she and her friend O have time to come for dead black celebrities who had charges dropped, cases dismissed against them, and the Michael Jackson case acquitted on all counts when 25 women have accused Donald Trump of sexual misconduct. And that's the end of my tweet thread. And that's that. It just wasn't the forum. It wasn't the forum, it wasn't the place, it wasn't the time, Gil King, to attack Kobe Bryant. And a point that I think Lisa Leslie made really wonderfully was the incident you're talking about happened in 2003 or 2004. You had all that time to interview Kobe Bryant on this. You had all that time. And you want to do this now after he's dead? The timing is suspect. It's inappropriate. And it's gross. That wasn't a time for gotcha journalism or investigative journalism. It was a puff piece that was a memorial moment where you're interviewing a dead person's deep friend. And someone pointed that out before. I don't see her interviewing, you know, before he was on trial, Harvey Weinstein. I don't see her interviewing Woody Allen. And not that those are analogous to Bryant, because once again, Bryant had cases dismissed, charges dropped. And if you think, if you want to say the same thing about Woody Allen, uh, you need to go investigate Ronan Farrell's thorough reporting on that case and then come back to me. He had... I'm not even going to go into that. What Woody Allen did to evade prosecution is like legendary and will be made into a movie, I'm sure, at some point. Because it's documented in court documents. He hired um, private investigators. He hired goons to harass people. I mean, to harass judges. I mean, it's a whole thing, honey. It's a whole thing. Uh, So did Harvey Weinstein. White men with power and money can get away with anything, period, as we're seeing with 45. But anyway, those are my thoughts on Gail King. Uh, Wasn't the time, wasn't the place. And it's interesting who you as a black woman choose to come for and when you choose to come for them. Very interesting. Something that I've seen within the last few months uh, in 
liberal circles, and I won't even say liberal circles, let me be specific, in black circles that I am in, and I will say that I, I the circles that I'm in skew um, a little bit intellectually elitist because it's mostly professional, so... I'm around black doctors, black lawyers, black senators, black uh, council members, et cetera, et cetera, uh, working at HBCU. Um, but I am around students, so maybe I think that sort of uh, interrupts the elitism, possibly, of black people that I'm around. Anyway. What I'm hearing from all levels is that there's a lack of excitement about the current democratic debates. And, uh, you know, you ask, did you see the debate? And people are like, no. Black people are like, no, I didn't see it. I didn't see it at all. And my white friends ask me these questions and they're a little incredulous because they know I'm such a a political maven. They'll come to me for opinions. I follow the right people on Twitter, so I always know what's happening, and I see the clips of the gotcha moments from the debates. I don't, a, I don't have a television in my apartment. That's on purpose, because I don't like to waste my time with television. I have my iPad. I can watch movies. I can watch what I want to watch when I want to watch it, but I don't mindlessly consume content in that way like I would if I had a TV. Right? It's very specific. I want to watch Cheer on Netflix. I want to watch Mildred Pierce. And it actually makes me go out of the apartment more and do things. So, I don't have a TV. However, my point in bringing this up was that I'm finding that black people are not excited about these candidates, these Democratic candidates, because we had such a hope and such a possibility when Barack Obama was president. He got a lot of things accomplished. Uh, Black unemployment drastically dropped under Obama. Um, Facts. And as a matter of fact, I can prove that those are facts. I mean, other than the fact that it's math. Um, Trump. I said his name. I usually just say 45. Anyway, I'll go back to 45. 45 actually proves that Obama did a lot of good work in getting black unemployment lowered because... 45 is trying to use the economy of Barack Obama to tout what's, what's going well. And that's because it was set in place by the last eight years. Duh. <laughs> and as, as unemployment overall continues to fall from the Obama effect, which we're now seeing reversed a little bit because of what 45 has done, the good economy he was able to tout was the Obama effect. But anyway... Back to my main point. I keep digressing. And things that are related. But black people are not excited about this democratic pool. Because we're back to... We've reset. We've rebooted. Right? There was hope when Kamala Harris was in the race. And now as we're talking about Vice President Stacey Abrams said the other day that she would be fine being a vice. She would be happy to be any of the the people, the current candidates... In the primaries running in the primary that are running, being the vice president, she would be happy to be there. Okay. But we wanted to have another black president. For that to be normal now, instead of a one-off. And what this year 
proved was that the black president was a one-off. And America is not, even though the black president worked so well for everybody, the economy, health care, Medicaid expansion gave millions of people insurance who never had it before. Um, even though that worked so well, save the auto economy, the auto industry in America, you know, jobs back on the up and up. It was a one-off because Kamala Harris did not get the support from the Democrats that she should have. And the fact that there was only one, right? <laughs> there was only one viable black candidate according to the system. And she's out. Now, she may be someone's VP. I don't know. But we wanted that there should be more than there should have been more than one. And she's out. So, you know, as we look at a picture of a bunch of white men on stage and only two white women, it's like, well, we're, we're back at square one. It's more of the same. And we're already seeing the same way Hillary was thrown under the bus. They're not trying to throw Elizabeth Warren under the bus being in the exact same way. So there's a lack of enthusiasm. Now we know that as black people, we, we're gonna have to vote for whatever Democrat is put up because the other side is, you know, Voldemort. The other side is the empire. The other side is Emperor Palpatine. I mean, there's just no, we don't have a choice and we're tired of not having a choice. And after Barack Obama, we were supposed to have choices. Right, there should have been more black options that the system put forward than just Kamala Harris. I liked Kamala Harris. She has an interesting background as a prosecutor in California, and she did some interesting things. And by interesting, I mean problematic. <laughs> but she was our only one. I think there was there was a black man when there were like you know three thousand people running in the primary. I think there were there was another black male. I think there were two more black men. I don't even count Yang because he's basically a white supremacist. I saw a clip from the other day in the Democratic primary where he was talking about we don't need to consider race. Elizabeth Warren, the, one of the white women up there, was talking about we need to have laws that regulate racism going further with the Civil Rights Act. And Yang, the only the only person of color on that stage, pipes up saying, it's about income inequality, it's not about race, is basically what he said. Without saying that, he said, we can't just, uh, we need to just put money into the hands of black people and figure it out, it's about, it's about money. Yes, and, yes, and. The racism is why black people don't have generational wealth. You can't separate the two. And it's whitewashing Andrew Yang to sit there and say, black people need money. It's not about regulating race. You can't regulate hearts. True, you can't regulate hearts, but you can make it illegal to be actively racist. You can make it illegal with protections to say, you are not allowed to not hire a black person. You are not allowed to not give a black post person a loan. You are not allowed to, you know, solely based on their race. You need to be able to prove, well, this person has a low credit score. And that's why they're not getting a loan. And then I shouldn't be able, as a bank, and then I shouldn't be able to go back through your records and say, okay, well, you gave, you know, 200 white people with this exact same credit score a loan. That's what I'm saying. So we can regulate racist actions. We can't 
write laws that, that, that prevent people from being racist in their hearts, but we can prevent uh, with laws and we can strengthen laws that already exist, restore laws that have been cut, like the, like the Voting Rights Act, which has been completely defanged. The pre-clearance section was taken completely out of the Voting Rights Act, and that's why all these southern states just suddenly magically passed all these voting ID laws. That's what that's about, people. Follow the breadcrumbs. When the Supreme Court took the pre-clearance section out of the Voting Rights Act, immediately seven states started putting up all of these laws that disproportionately negatively affect black people and the ability to vote. And then when that doesn't work and black people show up anyway, they pull that stunt that they did in Georgia where the idiot who was the Secretary of State was also running in the election against Stacey Abrams. And I say this all the time, this is like a player in the basketball game also being the referee. It's, it's, it's insane. Like It doesn't even make sense on its face. But anyway, black people are tired of not having any choices. And it was, it's depressing that after a black president, we now don't even have, there are no, there will be, we now know for sure. The fact that we know is that the next president of the United States it is impossible for that person to be a black person. All of the viable candidates are white. And that is depressing. That's very depressing. So that's why black people aren't excited. And we have no choice. We know that whatever Democrat they throw up there, we're going to have to vote for. Because it's either Voldemort or, you know, one of these, one of these white people on the stage. And it's exhausting to not really have choice. It's exhausting. I had a lot of friends ask me this day if I was going to watch the Oscars, being an actor. And I said no, and they were quite taken aback. And I said, well, you know, for what reason would I watch the Oscars? The hashtags we know, hashtag Oscars so white. Um, Award shows are garbage anyway, in general, because of white supremacy and misogyny. And, you know, we just recently had the Paola scandal uh, be revealed about the Grammys and who wins Grammy Awards. And basically you can buy a Grammy now. Um, because the Grammys are often awarded, one of the metrics they use is the billboard charts, and you can pay to be played on Clear Channel, and Clear Channel owns all the stations, which drives up your billboard chart positions, and then bundling of ticket sales draws up your billboard chart positions, which they use to get Grammys, and then people are like on the Grammy committee who nominate themselves, and so award shows are garbage. But a um, an industry friend, who's a theater critic who's on social media, was shading Renee Zellweger, and I kind of I've just got my entire life I died. Um, they said you know you know I'm going to paraphrase their tweet um, that something along the lines of as Renee Zellweger goes up to get her Oscar for playing Judy Garland. 
I think Turner Classic Movies is playing A Star is Born tonight at the same time as the Oscars. And Judy Garland did not win an Oscar for A Star is Born. She was nominated, but she didn't win. And that proves that award shows are trash. <laughs> Number one, I have no idea who told Renee Zellweger that she had the, the range to play Judy Garland. Like, nobody does. And this is not shade to Renee Zellweger because I like Renee Zellweger. I thought she deserved the Oscar for Cold Mountain. She's an amazing actress. But Judy? Judy goddamn Garland? Nobody. No one. There was not an actor on this earth who has ever lived on this earth previously or or, or will ever that should be playing Judy Garland in a movie. You just don't do it. There are just some projects you don't take on. And that was one she should not have taken on. But this whole thing about the Oscars, I kind of also find it ironic that I was listening, instead of watching the Oscars, I'll be listening, continue, I'll will be continuing to listen to the brilliant expose podcast of Ronan Farrow, Pulitzer Prize winning, Pulitzer Prize winning, pardon me. I found out that's the way you pronounce it, Pulitzer, not Pulitzer. If you if you go back to movies and back in time, if you think about when you were a kid and in high school, people used to always pronounce it Pulitzer, but now it's correctly pronounced Pulitzer. Fine. Ronan Farrow has a podcast called Catch and Kill. That's a podcast from his book, Catch and Kill, that's about the Me Too movement and the whole unraveling of Harvey Weinstein's entire empire. And it's not just Ronan Farrow talking. The women who came forward speak. They tell their own stories on this podcast. It is brilliant. Anyway, I just find it interesting that instead of watching the trash Oscars, I will literally be listening to a podcast that details how trash Hollywood is, misogyny, rape, um, uh, blackmail, like the Hollywood industry is absolute garbage. So I think it's very fitting that I'm watching that, I'm sorry, listening to that podcast instead of watching the trash Oscars. It is resistance to hear the stories of survivors and to promote them. And so I've been retweeting this podcast. I've been talking about it on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Listen to this podcast. It's free. Hear the stories of these survivors and pass the story on. Pass the story on. The Great Flood has spoken.